Vodka. Vodka. Vodka Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. And today uh, we're going to be picking up on some comic book themes and uh, overall discussion of general isms that we've been dealing with in the media, not just pop culture, like uh, other forms of entertainment and politics. So today my guest on the show is Charles Battersby, and you, uh, you know, welcome to the show. Hello. So um, anybody who's listened to the show before may have heard your voice at least before because you were on a panel in New York that I recorded, and the panel there was discussing transgender themes in comics. So uh, you came... Uh, like uh, across as the expert on the subject. So what is your background <laughs> with comics and why is this important to you? Uh, well, we did a couple of panels at uh, New York Comic Con Special Edition and at uh, the New York Comic Con 2014. The panels were called Secret Identities, Transgender Themes in Comics. Uh, so we spoke with uh, some uh, comic book writers and artists that have addressed transgender themes in mainstream comics and superhero comics and some indie comics as well, uh, because there's been decades of comic books that deal with transgender characters or with storylines that involve changing gender. And throughout my life, uh, I've always noticed these, uh, you know, these themes that seem to be very commonplace in certain types of uh, literature, especially science fiction uh, but also anything that involves uh, fantasy and also the superhero genre. And so I myself am transgender. Uh, I've been an out-of-the-closet cross-dresser for about 25 years, and I've addressed uh, these themes in theater, in video games, and most recently in comic books. Okay, so um, when I saw you there on the panel, uh, like you said, you had cross-dressed and uh, looked beautiful. Thank um, you. <laughs> you're still using the name Charles. You're not picking up uh, any kind of like ultra-feminine alias, as I've seen other people do, um, where they really emphasize that, you know, a, a different style or a different um, a presentation. You're just still Charles. Right. Uh, I'm comfortable with my identity and with my body, so there's no plans on changing my legal status or using hormones and surgery to change my body. And I use the name Charles Battersby for everything I do. Uh, in the modern world of social media and the Internet, I think it's important that people own up to everything that they do and have a consistent personality that they use. And So is that um, also hold true then for the pronouns that you use? Yeah, I well, with pronouns, it, it tends to come and go. Um, in general, I prefer people refer to me as he. Uh, when I'm actively presenting myself as female, I prefer she. Uh, that's generally how, uh, that's usually the polite way when dealing with a transgender person, whatever gender they're presenting as at that moment, you'll use those pronouns. But it's different for every person. Okay. Oh, I, I know that one of the... Um, like more famous uh, people that, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, others who might not know any transgender folks in their personal lives, they might have seen Eddie Izzard yep. memes going around with him in various dresses. And he says, well, they're not women's dresses. I bought them. I wear them. They're my dresses. <laughs> and he, you know, he also doesn't, I don't, I've never heard a uh, change uh, like his actual identification at all. He's just a man who likes to wear other things. Yes. Uh, actually, Eddie Izzard and I met at uh, the most recent Comic-Con. Um, neither of us were dressed at the time, so I don't think he, he realized <laughs> what, okay. a, what a momentous moment it was. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that there are a, a small subsection of transgender people that uh, have that mentality. It's Yeah, I think it's... Um, not only refreshing, but educational, because of this fact where uh, it was only, gosh, it might be two weeks now ago, where um, the world lost a, you know, seemingly sweet, innocent transgender girl, Leela Alcorn, um, 
whose parents were trying to put her through the Christian conversion therapy to fix her and keep her a boy. And, um, you know, so it's something that it's people might not have that actual personal connection to. And that's why they look to role models like Laverne Cox or Eddie Izzard or, you know, who if they see it more, they might feel that there is some support out there somewhere. Yeah, it's there's been a, a huge upsurge in transgender awareness in just the last three or four years. When I first started doing uh, the video game series, that's called Press XY, um, when we first started doing that, we were pretty much the only dedicated transgender in video games group. There are a lot of LGBT groups that you know, where the T is not as dressed as strongly as the L and G. Uh, and in just the, the last two or three years uh, since we started doing that in 2012, uh, it's become a major focus of not just gaming, but of popular culture in general. So in terms of popular culture, though, and uh, being social, you're a very outgoing person. Um, what sort of, uh, you know, problems or challenges have you run into? I mean, do you, I've heard of like bathroom horror stories and, um, you know, these terrible things like that. I mean, I'm glad that people are willing to have panels and discuss this because um, it's important that people feel welcome. I know up here in uh, New Jersey, there are a couple conventions that run like the gaming conventions for uh, Dexcon and Dreamation and the steampunk conventions where the hotels that they have them in, they designate uh, like gender neutral bathrooms for people. So, um, so that anybody can feel comfortable and, you know, at any time. So in your, all of your convention travels and your performances, what have you run into? Well, the gender-neutral bathroom uh, used to be the, the subject of farce and parody, if you remember on Ally McBeal, uh, they were used for a lot of humor. Uh, and in the last few years, it's become something that's addressed in a very serious way. Um, PAX East, uh, I think two years ago, they started using gender-neutral bathrooms, which are, are a huge help, especially since there's a lot of uh, cosplayers that... Uh, you know, might change from gender to gender over the course of the uh, over the course of the weekend. Uh, and in terms of my personal horror stories, uh, there were lots of them in the old days, back in the 90s and early 2000s. They've become less and less of a problem over the last five years, and people are generally very tolerant now. That's really good news. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have uh, had, I, I'll call it an amusing story. Other people might be enraged by this. Um, but uh, I did have someone ask if they could take a picture of me using a urinal in my skirt when I was in a, a men's room. And I, I had to because he thought it would be a funny little picture to put on Instagram or something. And I had to politely explain to the gentleman that, no, that would not be appropriate, and I'm probably not the only person in the men's room that's comfortable with him taking pictures of all the people lined up at the urinal. Yeah, that's creepy on so many levels. <laughs> and I think it was well intended that he just thought it would be a, a funny picture. But yes, it was yeah. creepy and insulting. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people would have been enraged uh, if someone asked them that. I, I mean, were you dressed in costume or was it a dress? Because I've seen crazy like cosplay bathroom things like, you know, Spider-Man at the urinal before. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think this was intended to be Spider-Man at the urinal. I think this was. You know, isn't it funny that someone's lifting their skirt to use a urinal? Um, and yeah. Yeah, I, I think you know it was just politically incorrect humor. And um, the conventions are are definitely getting better. More and more of them are posting anti-harassment policies, which um, is it helps everybody. Some people are thinking we're sucking the fun out of uh, pop culture by asking for things to <laughs> to actually be stated that you're not allowed to be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the unspoken rule, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not they put a big banner in the lobby that says don't be a jackass. Uh, it just is a good rule to live by. And if you're offended by uh, you know, the, the anti-harassment policies, then that's a problem with your personality. Then you're someone who likes going around harassing people. Right. Um, it's And it's a shame if it's coming from one of the vendors or 
presenters or companies that are there in in a big capacity. I understand that you had a little issue way back in the day before this stuff became, uh, you know, more accepted to to post anti-harassment signs. Uh, Yeah, I was part of uh, what's become known as the infamous the infamous Catwoman incident of 1993. And I got to state that this was over 20 years ago and almost everyone involved is probably no longer employed at the same company where these events happened. But uh, I volunteered to intern at a a comic book convention, uh, a major one in New York City at a major convention center. I I won't name names or point fingers, but uh, I cosplayed as Catwoman for that. And uh, for you know, listeners who don't remember the the history of Catwoman, this was in uh, the early 90s, right after the Tim Burton, Michelle Pfeiffer version of the character had appeared, and Catwoman was being depicted as very sexual and fetishy. It's also just a few years after uh, the Frank Miller Batman Year One interpretation of the character as a dominatrix prostitute. So I showed up at the convention in a meticulous recreation of Michelle Pfeiffer's latex and corset Catwoman outfit, which I thought was just a fun showing of love for the character, but a lot of people thought it was, uh, you know, very sexual. And after being at the convention for a few hours, a representative of DC Comics asked me to leave. And so I was thrown out of the convention because they didn't really appreciate the, uh, the interpretation of the character that I was presenting even though it was an interpretation of what they published. (laughs) It it was exactly what they were publishing. Uh, And this was summer of 93. Uh, So you might remember that there was a Catwoman, uh, uh, her own ongoing series that they were just about to launch in 1993. So they were trying to clean up her image and promote her as her own little anti-hero. And at the time, there were a bunch of failed attempts to give Catwoman her own cartoon or to give her a sequel movie that was spun off from the Tim Burton ones. And, of course, the ongoing mediocre 90s Catwoman uh, uh, solo series. So they were aggressively trying to clean up the character and pretend that all those uh, kinkier aspects didn't exist. And I think uh, my gender identity combined with the outfit um, was presenting the character in a way that they were trying to avoid. Which is really interesting um, because I mean, wasn't that around the era of when Jim Valent was drawing her? Yes, yes it was. Um, because, I, I mean... Talk about sexualizing, <laughs> over-sexualizing the female body um, in, in any capacity. That's what he's known for. Yes. Yeah. Um, so and, there you go. And I think you know my gender identity was a, a very strong influence on it. And I also think they had a, a just a couple of jerks working their uh, working their booths at uh, at the convention that year. So I don't think it's a it's a company wide mentality. I think it was more they just had a couple of a couple of uh, individuals working there that just weren't as tolerant as they should have been. I didn't start going to conventions until 2006, and one of my first experiences, I'm pretty sure it was in, in the New York show, um, was also someone cross-dressing as Catwoman, but it was the the purple Jim Valent version. And I don't know if you ever wore that one, but um, but it's... You know, do you think there's something about Catwoman that just makes, I don't know, is more applicable to cross-dressing or gender-bending in any way? Well, I think that uh, the major characters are more likely to get a, a, you know, a gender-bent version just because they're so iconic. And Catwoman, you know, the, the modern view that people have of Catwoman dates back to maybe the 60s, but she was actually one of the villains from, you know, the, the very first um, Batman storylines back when she was called The Cat. And uh, she's been reinvented many times over the decades, but she is an iconic character. And so Catwoman and Wonder Woman, you know, they're going to get uh, they're going to get the gender bend treatment just because they're so prominent. Okay. Um, when it comes to Wonder Woman, uh, I've always been much more defensive about it because she's supposed to come from this race of of women. And I, there was some kind of like Manazon storyline that was kicked around. I don't know whatever happened to that, but it wasn't that they were men um, gender bending into Wonder Woman. It was that there were suddenly male Amazons and the like 
pissed me off. I'm like, what do you, you know, what is this? I guess, I mean, I know that there's like uh, multiple verses and everything, multiple parallel births. So I guess it was one of those things. But it just, to me, it just like infuriated me because as it is, Wonder Woman doesn't really get the respect that Batman and Superman do. Yeah, I, I and, absolutely agree. She's allegedly one of their trinity of characters, but they've never been able to get a good movie off the ground or a good live action movie off the ground. There was uh, a really good animated version. Um, yeah, I like that one. Uh, and uh, they also, you know, some of the Justice League storylines in, uh, you know, the Justice League animated versions, you know, they've done some good stuff with Wonder Woman there, but they, they've never had a proper Wonder Woman uh, feature film that's live action. And, uh, you know, the, the old Linda Carter show that a lot of us remember fondly from our youth, uh, that was, you know, a low budget show that only got two and a half seasons. And they, they have not attempted to uh, reboot that with any seriousness. There was a, you know, a very bad pilot filmed a couple of years ago. And, yeah, I, abs- I absolutely agree that it's a shame that Warner Brothers doesn't utilize that character. I I you know, keep having hope for her that, you know, now that it's announced that they're supposed to be making one in in the next few years, um, that maybe things will change. But just as a, as a consumer, when I would go to, uh, places like Party City or, um, the fabric store, and there's just, you know, half a rack of Batman shit to buy your kids, but I can't, you know, can't buy Wonder Woman things because they just don't exist. Especially yeah. when she's, when they put her on the signs. You know, it's like, what is, you know, what is it about this? It's like you have her in your marketing, but you don't make the stuff. <laughs> uh, it's part of a, a widespread mentality that there are girl toys and there are boy toys. And superhero action figures are boy toys, so they don't make the girl action figures. Uh, and, uh, you know, from what I've seen amongst my, my nerd friends, that there is a, you know, there's a massive market of girls that want to buy the same kind of nerdy superhero and video game toys that boys do. But the, the people making it uh, or the people that have the option to make it are just choosing not to make the product under the false impression that it won't sell. Right. And, you know, we just saw that with Gamora and the other female (laughs) characters of Guardians of the Galaxy, where it's like, oh, no, there'll be Gamora stuff, just not in the first wave. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding? Like, you're going to put Ronan out before you're going to put Gamora out? (laughs) Are you fucking with me right now? Um, And, you know, so somebody just posted, it was only like within the last week, a picture of uh, Nebula and Gamora on a t-shirt, finally, and cut for uh, the women's style, the (laughs) the body type, and available in plus sizes. It was just like the most remarkable thing. I think it was her universe. So go support them because they actually care. Um, It's... uh, I've also in the last couple of weeks seen opposing viewpoints about the, you know, the always iconic Slave Leia gold bikini. Um, one little girl, uh, it, it was hilariously presented. Somebody made an animated cartoon of this girl having a conversation with her dad. And it was so funny um, where the little girl was going on and on. She had this beautiful British accent talking about how much she loved the gold chains and that it's very strong and it's just this amazingly adorable conversation and then a week later um saladin ahmed posted that his his little girl picked up something uh with legos it was either like the video game or something and the princess leia in there has the gold bikini on and she's four years old and she's like dad how come everybody else gets real clothes (laughs) (laughs) it's like ah from a four-year-old um, and it's true, and it's not you know it's not to, to bitch about the gold bikini presentation at all because she was a slave in that role, and that's you know what she was put in. Um, but when you're merchandising things, you're you've got products out there, and your only female character is presented a certain way. <laughs> like, like oh come on, really. Yeah, and you know the uh, the white dress and sticky bun hairdo is just as iconic as the metal bikini. Yeah, and I I mean everybody loves those cinnamon bun hairs. <laughs> I mean it's 
it's fantastic. So I just even and I even noticed that in the the Lego because I was like, oh my gosh, they even offer other versions in Lego. And I looked it up, and they do. They have the Hoth version. They have the the, the first uh, beautiful white gown version. Um, but even the Hoth version outfit has the cinnamon bun hair, which is not what her hair looks <laughs> like. But it's Legos. I mean, you can't really, I guess, make braids and things. Um, but, I mean, kids notice that. So, you know, do do kids ever come up and, and they're usually really blunt when they speak? Do they, how do they get along when they see you in a dress? Uh, on very rare occasions, kids might be surprised or confused, but it's mostly very positive. Uh, when you know w- when you're cosplaying, uh, you know at the conventions, you know if you're if you're dressed like a princess, you know all the little girls are going to run up to you just because you're a princess. Uh, and you know on occasion, you know boys will you know tell you how pretty you are. Uh, and there's also been a couple of occasions where you know I've been cosplaying as a female character uh, when when uh, someone cosplays as a uh, a character of the other gender. It's called crossplay, uh, just just for uh, people who don't know the term. But you know, when I'm crossplaying, I uh, occasionally will have a, a young transgender person come up, and you know, uh, to them, you know, it's inspiring to see uh, you know a grown up that's uh, doing the kind of thing that they want to do. And th- there have been uh, there's been one incident where uh, someone on Facebook sent me an email about a convention that I went to 10 years ago, or more than that, probably 15 years ago. It was just some dinky little convention in you know a little hotel lobby, and they met me and remembered me for 15 years, and then now that they're grown up, uh, they're a cosplayer too and openly transgender. What's so broad and welcoming about the whole cosplay scene is, um, at least we certainly hope welcoming. I know there's some areas that don't feel that way but there's a lot of crossplay going on and people are not identifying as transgender they just are tweaking and playing with a character that they like and want to show their fandom of and i and i think that that's important for them to also just say no it's just me in this you know this version that i've reimagined no different than if a hollywood director to reimagine it and you know stick it on the cw or something um, they, it, it's just so fluid and seamless where I, I don't want anybody to think that, oh, you're, you know, anybody cross-playing is going to identify as transgender because that's not necessarily going to be the case. It's just that it's a really welcoming environment because you're already dressing up in something fantastical. Yeah, uh, in the convention scene and the cosplay scene, it is about exploring identity, uh, not, you know, not just gender identity, but just picking characters that you admire and trying to emulate them and to, to make the real world more like the fantasy world that you like. Uh, right, and it's, uh, you know, the, I, I know a lot of um, non-white cosplayers have been getting, getting, they get so much crap. I'm like, I don't understand this. Like, you know, whether they're dressed up as Sailor Moon or Wonder Woman or whatever. And I, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's usually the shit that's in comments. And we all know that you should not <laughs> read the comments or take them very seriously. But if it's put on somebody's own Tumblr or blog or whatever, they're going to obviously see that. And it's done intentionally with somebody seeing it. Um, y- you know, at the convention, they might feel okay. And then they get home and they see that their picture ended up in a meme or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just horrible. Yeah, I've, I've, never, I've never agreed with the mentality that you're only allowed to identify with characters that are part of your own ethnic group, or you're only allowed to enjoy your, you know, your ethnic group's traditional culture. You can't pick something you like and emulate it. Uh, and you know, in cosplay, you you know, you do see a lot of black sailor scouts and you know, a lot of white sailor scouts, which you know, people, you know, uh, you know, people sometimes get uh, enraged about this. And uh, I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. Uh, and you know, the, people should be happy when someone likes the same things that they like. And I, I think that that's a message that's lost. It's the gatekeeping. Uh, that we hear about uh, it's the same as you know when girls feel left out of the clubhouse um, type of stuff that goes on uh, um, so it's like you said it's a fandom 
and part of that involves being part of of the community, you know, and that's why you go to conventions, isn't it? Otherwise, don't just stay home and marathon your favorite shit. Yeah, and you know, and that's why people are wearing these costumes because they say, "Look, look, I like Sailor Moon a lot." I spent 40 hours and $800 perfectly recreating the Queen Serenity gown. I like Sailor Moon just as much as you. And you know, that's and that's the message they're sending, so they shouldn't be punished for that. And it's, um, you know, like your experience from 20 years ago, things are certainly, uh, I always get the impression that they're going to be better and feel better. And then you see some stupid creator or publisher say something really stupid about the cosplay community, um, that they're not welcome or that they should have their own aisles or their own shows or whatever, or they're just, they'll just bitch and bitch and bitch because they can. And I understand they're paying hundreds of dollars for the table space. And, you know, and they feel like second-rate citizens at Comic-Cons now. <laughs> there, are, there are valid arguments, but you don't get to take it out on the cosplayers. You take that up with the convention organizers if you don't like the way things are run. <laughs> uh, you know, so what have you, you know, ha, have you had to deal with creators being unfriendly to you other than, you know, that, that booth? Uh, aside from uh, the Catwoman incident, no. Uh, what I found is that the savvy business people, they know that having a cosplayer near your booth is going to draw over attention uh, and a big crowd of potential consumers. So the cosplayers are often free marketing for the creators. And, you know, as a creator, you know, if you don't have people cosplaying as your characters or, uh, you know, or your characters aren't readily iconic and aren't readily suited to being, you know, cosplayed as, then, you know, maybe it's your creation just isn't distinct and recognizable. Right. It's, you know, I think if I ever saw somebody dressed as a character I created, I would be enamored. <laughs> I would just, especially with some of the the ways that they pull off the construction of the outfits. Some people can put together the most amazing things for like less than a hundred dollars. <laughs> and then you have other people that go above and beyond and spend like thousands of dollars. Yeah. Uh, there are some real fanatics that, uh, uh, they get into it. I, I've seen people in seven foot tall transforming robot suits. <laughs> yeah. I've seen the transformer. I've seen some, some good Predators and stuff and Iron Man outfits. Yeah, and I, I've also seen some people that, uh, you know, they'll take, uh, you know, like an anime schoolgirl and create a, a perfect recreation of her ordinary uh, school outfit so that, you know, the, the cosplayer just looks like an ordinary uh, person in a school uniform walking through the convention. But if you're familiar with that particular anime, you know exactly what character she's supposed to be. Yeah, if you're trying to to cosplay as somebody who wears um like modern street clothes or something, it's it, you really need something to um like a prop or something that <laughs> identifies you. If you don't look exactly like the person, like I know there are several folks out there who do different uh Doctor Who uh characters and some of them you you know, usually the guys that look exactly like those actors, it's freakish. <laughs> it's so freakish. It's like, oh my god, it looks like a double or a stand-in or something. Yeah, there's a, a video game character named Phoenix Wright, who's a lawyer in the present day, and he just wears a blue double-breasted suit. So every now and then you'll see cosplayers uh, walking around in just, you know, it's just a, a blue suit, and you, you wouldn't know what they are, except they're carrying signs with quotes from the game. I I love some of them. I'm and it, the the funny thing is the comparisons um between the two characters, the one from Supernatural and John Constantine. Um the one playing maybe because they're nearly identical. <laughs> so it's like, "Oh wait, um what color tie are you wearing?" Oh wait, and some people are like now adding wings so that they are better identified as the angel guy and so <laughs> Constantine. Which, uh, you know, ha by the way, is a new show, and I've been enjoying it. I don't know if you're, you're into it. Oh, yes. I, I, I watched every episode except last night's. Okay. So. No spoilers. Yeah. It was really good acting. It was really pretty phenomenal acting. Um, and so, you know, but speaking of the DC universe, uh, the, is that is that usually the only, like, universe you cosplay in, or do you get... Do you, 
poke around into other things. Oh no, I'm uh, Marvel and DC. I I don't like the idea of uh, you know being loyal to just one publisher because you know if, uh, you know if, if I like uh, you know Ed Brubaker when he writes Catwoman, then I like Ed Brubaker when he writes Captain America. Uh, and so I, you know, I cosplayed as both characters. Uh, uh, so Marvel, DC, I do uh, video games, anime as well, uh, sometimes film characters. And have you ever actually cosplayed as a transgender character that appeared that way? Because I, part of your, your panel was how you educated people on the history of transgender characters that from where they existed and, and how... Um, how very often it wasn't actually a transgender character. It was somebody cross-dressing to, um, to deceive or a villain or something like that. So uh, it, is it something that you've ever actually had the opportunity or interest in, in dressing up as somebody that represented your identity? Uh, yes, I've done that on numerous occasions. Uh, there's a, a really popular uh, manga series and uh, cartoon called Black Butler, where the main it's set in uh, early 19th century. Uh, the main character is a young boy, and there's one storyline where he has to go undercover as a uh, young as a young woman at a ball. And for the for those scenes, he wears a very elaborate uh, ball gown that's done in a you know kind of a late Victorian style. So I've cosplayed as that character. Uh, and you know people that you know that know the storyline, they're very pleased to see uh, someone you know cross playing as a cross dressing character. Uh, and there are also quite a few video game characters as well. I have uh, cosplayed as Poison from Final Fight, uh, if you know that character. I don't even know that game. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say Final Fantasy, and I was like, okay, I at least recognize <laughs> She's now. also been in uh, the most recent uh, Street Fighter games as well. Okay, I've heard at least Street Fighter. Yeah. And so, so Poison is one of the really iconic transgender characters uh, in video gaming. Okay, I understand that there's, like, uh, in role-playing, there's actually been more opportunity now where some of the, the races and classes of characters are, even if they've existed before, they're finally getting, like, you know, put on the covers of the boxes and, and things like that. So. <laughs> Some of the marketing is improving to at least uh, help get these characters better known. And uh, one of the most recent, though, that we've seen in comics was from Batgirl. <laughs> uh, the dreaded Batgirl number 37 issue. Wow, did that explode in people's faces. Uh, and here's... Uh, I, want, I, I wanted to have you on the show to explain how you felt uh, when you saw it because I, I didn't have the full issue. So all I had was a couple pages that people posted. And to me, when I saw this new version of Barbara Gordon, she's definitely made to appear younger than she had previously. Um, you know, so it's a new costume and sort of like a somewhat different kind of personality. When she, she reaches up to this villain who's masquerading as this very bedazzled version of her. Like, it's a very glittery Vegas-style, you know, copied version of her. And she goes after, you know, this this bad guy, grabs the, the cowl, and in her grabbing, a wig comes off also. And she sees that it's actually this artist that she believed, you know, was a, a man called Dagger Tight. So I didn't even know, and I didn't want anybody to, to really scream and argue at the creators yet until they had more information. Like we didn't even know if dagger type was transgender. All we know is that he was a guy wearing an outfit of Batgirl. And it's my understanding when the apology came out that the creators issued that more information came out and that he's not actually transgender. So I don't know if you got any more information from that, or if you could tell me what your experience was like when you saw that. Well, for months before the issue actually came out, uh, they'd been, you know, they'd released the cover of uh, all the comics a few months ahead of time. And a lot of my cosplay friends had seen, you know, the picture of Batgirl in this sparkly gold sequined outfit. Uh, and even before the comic had come out, I had a friend that was actually in a full gold sequined uh, Batgirl costume, <laughs> cosplaying as that character before it was even on the stands. Uh, so, you know, the image of this character uh, that they created was resonating with fans really strongly uh, before anyone knew anything about the storyline. 
And when the storyline came out, uh, there was a lot of hostility instantaneously directed at the creators. Uh, and one particular moment in the comic uh, caused uh, a, a great deal of the outrage. Uh, after Batgirl grabs the uh, mask and wig and pulls it off Dagger Type's head, she has a line where she says, but you're a hyphen. And it's implied that she's about to say, but you're a man. And that gets back to one of the uh, standard stereotypes and tropes uh, that are used in a negative way for transgender characters, that the transgender person is behaving in a predatory and deceitful manner, and that our gender expression is done to trick people and manipulate them for some nefarious purpose. And when the hero successfully unwigs or unmasks the transgender person, there's a, a moment of... <gasps> You're really a man masquerading as a woman, but I've seen through your cunning scheme. And, uh, you know, that, you know, those three lines of, but you're a dash, uh, are, are what caused a lot of outrage in the transgender community. I, I think that just that A makes a huge difference. That if she had just said, but you're dot, 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 it would have been like, but you're dagger type the artist. Yes. You know, not. Not that, but your a something an object. Yeah, uh, yeah. The uh, the writers almost immediately issued a, an apology, saying, you know, we made mistakes, and I think that their intention was to make a comment on celebrity identity, on you know, Batgirl's public persona versus you know, uh, Batgirl's real you know identity, uh, and that it's a comment on celebrity, not gender identity. And of course, by adding in that one line. Uh, they implied strongly that Barbara was mad that a man is masquerading as her rather than she's angry that someone else of any gender is impersonating her. Uh, and there were there were quite a few things that the writers could have done uh, to, you know, to explain uh, that, you know, Barbara is not mad or astonished that he's a man, that Barbara is just, you know, reacting to unmasking the villain. Uh, and I, when I was trying to follow the combination of outrage and just streams of information and education during this, uh, you know, all of this on Twitter, um, there were people that explained why the apology was a really good thing. First of all, the way it was worded was fantastic. Um, there was no, uh, like, buts. In it, mm -hmm. there was no "we're really sorry," but it was just "we're really sorry we fucked this up." <laughs> um, and uh, Geeked Out blog, in fact, uh, had this to say: They said, "Is Batgirl's doppelganger transgender?" From my understanding, the answer is no. But as a trans person will attest, a character does not have to be explicitly labeled as transgender to perpetuate transphobia. And that gets back to what you were talking about with the uh, villain needing to deceive. Uh, tropes and I found more information about that because I was it was something that I hadn't recognized until I heard your panel and then I saw Comics Alliance uh, somebody said the imposter Batgirl dagger type is reminiscent of Norman Bates and Psycho from 1960 as well as Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs in 1991 not unlike dagger type in both instances we have characters who are assigned male at birth who assumed the identities of women and commit heinous acts of murder as part of their modus operandi and this you know this is um one of the biggest things like I said that I brought away from listening to your lecture about it was you know like uh, it hadn't even dawned on me <laughs> that, that that those were things that people were doing. I was just like, oh yeah, they do that. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's very common you know in the real world for drag queens or performance artists uh, to be cisgendered. You know that the, the character is not really transgender; uh, they're just performing a character of the opposite gender. And I think that the writer's intention behind this was that Dagger Type is a performance artist. Uh, if you look at his clothing and some of the artworks, there seems to be you know an implication he's a little bit David Bowie, uh, and there's a little bit Andy Warhol in there. So I think the writer's intention was that it was a cisgender character impersonating Batgirl as a kind of performance art um, in order to uh, you know acquire unearned celebrity status. 
And uh, it didn't turn out that way, um, but I, the writers approached it with good intentions, and then it, it and it ended up having a, a lot of very negative stereotypes. Uh, and if you you know if you read the full storyline, you'll see that Dagger Type is depicted as a very incompetent villain, uh, a reprehensible character in almost all forms. So. Uh, you know, having the character be sort of transgender or unspecified gender identity is it's only part of the problem. It's that the character is depicted with uh, such negative characteristics of being stupid and vain. Uh, and and then there's general, uh, you know, the worth of the story itself. Uh, if this were some, you know, some brilliant work of literature on, you know, uh, a person's personal identity, or if it were just a magnificent superhero story, this could be forgiven. But you know, we we end up having a lot of problems uh, in the story just because the villain is is incompetent. And uh, you know, if you read the issue, the villain's story, uh, the villain's plan essentially falls apart on its own without Batgirl really having to do anything. So uh, you know, th- there are a lot of flaws with this story. So if this were written by somebody like Alan Moore and it was um, presented as something that was going to be violent and graphic and, um, you know, leaps over that edge as he often does. Do you think it would have had this effect? I, I think that I, I don't want to bash the writers who did this uh, because, you know, they've done a lot of great work in the story, you know, in, in Batgirl in general. This was just, you know, a bad issue. And uh, but, yeah, I think that if if there had been more to the story besides, hey, let's have Batgirl fight a drag queen that's dressed up like Batgirl, uh, then you know, I think people would have uh, understood more clearly the meaning behind it, that it, it isn't so much a comment on transgender as it is, uh, you know, the writer was trying to say something more profound. Okay. And um, you picked up the the follow-up issue to that, issue 38, and, you know, you said that the storyline just kind of dropped. I mean, what if it's not wrapped up at all? Well, at the end of uh, issue number 37, uh, Batgirl thwarts, uh, well, she doesn't really thwart dagger type. Uh, his plan falls apart. He's hauled away by the police. Uh, and there's a vague implication that dagger type is the hench person of a greater villain. Uh, and that's at the end of 37. In issue 38, uh, there's no reference to dagger type or the previous events or to, uh, you know, some grand plan. Uh, it's only in the very last panel or the last page of issue 38 that we see some hint that there's a greater villain still impersonating Batgirl. Uh, so, you know, uh, I don't know if there was an older draft of issue 38 where they might have referenced uh, Dagger Type and they chose to just drop the character, um, you know, in, a, in edit. Uh, but uh, in 38, it seems like uh, Dagger Type was just a one-shot uh, third-rate villain that's brought up and dismissed. Do you think it's possible that in the amount of time it takes to construct an issue of a comic book that they that they could have altered it? Because, I mean, these scripts are turned in so many months in advance, and then they've got to be with the artistic team and go through editorial and go through the production and printing process and all that. Do you think that it's really possible that they could have changed the issue? I don't really think it's possible, but I'd like to extend, you know, DC Comics the, uh, you know, the curtain and the benefit of the doubt that maybe they changed issue 38 to remove controversial content. Because I know that other times that they've felt um, something went out that was offensive, they'll change it like a second printing. So that if you, because mm-hmm. um, uh, while I was working at the comic book store, there were times when they were told to pull issues off the, of the shelves and that they were um, sent new versions of issues as quickly as possible because like um, one was, um, like so benign it showed Superman not as Superman showed him as Clark Kent at the farm drinking a beer with his father <laughs> and they had to remove it and change it to root beer <laughs> so they actually had to take them off the shelves but some people had already purchased them in time so um, so they're like these rare versions of that particular issue out there and um I mean, that's going to take an extraordinary effort. And to be that upset over, uh, you know, 
a full-grown man drinking a beer with his dad. And then, you know, the thought of you've just uh, offended (laughs) a percentage of your population. Um, I just, I don't know that DC would have given it that kind of effort, maybe. Yeah, I, you know, I'll extend them the courtesy of thinking that, you know, maybe they, you know, there might have been some grander story plan for Dagger Type that's, got modified but you know it, it might have happened might have not but you know I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt okay we'll just keep it as an unknown mystery yes and perhaps in forthcoming issues that had been their plan all along that all of batgirl's little one-shot villains will unite again and and we'll see batgirl fight the sinister six with dagger type right there in a, a revamped better version can you tell me if this is any different at all than when we saw the Joker dressed up as a nurse in the Dark Knight movie? Yes, absolutely. Um, because in the Dark Knight, uh, the Joker is a cunning master. Uh, you know, he's a he's a uh, a person who is you know a brilliant tactician who uh, he can pull off plans partly through coming up with great ideas and partly because he can just thrive within the chaos. So from the Joker's personality, the Joker dressing up as a nurse in in a shameless, transparent disguise, it's something that that character can and would do. And regardless of whether or not it's a good idea, it's something the Joker would do because he's crazy and he knows he can get away with it even if the plan just falls apart around him. And so, okay. Yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, I, I've heard the argument that the, that it's exactly that, that the Joker can do whatever he wants. Um, he has literally no conscience at all. But we've also seen in different versions of the Joker that that he does have a, a more fluid sexual identity, um, maybe not for himself, but maybe sexual orientation. Is, is definitely could go either way depending on who his writer and artist are. <laughs> well, within the confines of that movie, it's never specified that he's transgender. It's just, right. you know, th- this is just some crazy disguise that, uh, you know, the Joker might have planned all along in advance weeks ago, or maybe the Joker just beat up a nurse and took her uniform 10 minutes before the scene happened. And so, right. you know, so it, it suits his character very much for the Joker to, to show up dressed like a nurse and scare the hell out of someone who is badly wounded in a hospital. And um, one of the uh, I, I honestly, I think, you know, there are times when my friends just put me on mute because they don't they don't want to deal with my ignorant questions. But this is why I ask so many questions, because I'm trying to understand these all of this. Um but, you know, a, a very revered uh, female character that's uh, amongst the feminist community, let me put it this way. It's not a very well-known movie, exactly. But Angelina Jolie starring in the movie Salt, where she plays Evelyn Salt, which was actually a character written to be a man. Um, and they changed it to cast her. Um, part of that movie, because she's like this amazing super spy kind of character, like, you know, trying to... Uh, unravel this plot and goes through all of these, uh, you know, wonderful spy things in order to, to clear, I think her husband's name or something. Um, but part of that involved her putting on the very top quality special effects, Hollywood type of makeup wig and all of that. So that in one scene, she's in disguise as a man and then kicks a whole bunch of ass and rips off the disguise. So why did nobody say that was transphobic? Because it was also, it was a a woman as a man. Like, is it much more, is there a different level of offense if it's the other way around? Uh, Well, I I think the male to female uh, cross-dressing character is such an established negative trope. Uh, You know, especially with Norman Bates and with Buffalo Bill being such... Uh, you know, very large, iconic cultural references that when a transgender character is at all reminiscent of those characters, it's very offensive. And so I I don't know if there are, uh, you know, if there's an equally great iconic cultural moment of a woman disguising herself as a man and being a reprehensible serial killer. Uh, You know, there is the movie Monster, but that was just, you know, she's kind of butch. And it's also, it's not Mm -hmm. something that's been with society for for decades. And, you know, the Norman Bates, uh, Ed Gein, uh, Ed Gein is the real world serial killer that inspired, um, you know, many of the 
the uh, cross-dressing serial killer characters. Uh, and so, you know, that's just such a negative, uh, in, uh, a negative, impactful cultural um, uh, um, concept that uh, male to female uh, transgender people are very sensitive to seeing that used again and again and again and again. Okay, so you also, besides being this analytical from a fan perspective, you also do your own uh, playwriting and acting. So from a creator perspective, what are things that you've, you've come across that you want other creators to know that, um, that maybe you can explain to them on that level? Sure. Well, as a creator, uh, a lot of the stories that I write, they're written gender, race, and age neutral. I'll just come up with a character who has some goals, some history, uh, and it won't matter specifically what gender they are, what race they are. Uh, and, you know, those are filled in as details that come later. Um, so I do have on occasion characters that are transgender uh, and sometimes characters who are gender nonspecific and uh when I do those characters, it's very common for me to create a character that, you know, uh, she's female, and if I play the role, then the audience is allowed to identify the character however they want. Uh, they could see it as, you know, the character is definitely a male-to-female transgender character, or they could just see this as an outlandish female character that happens to be played by me. And on very rare occasions, I will write uh, stories that are specifically about transgender themes. I recently did a play called The Astonishing Adventures of All-American Girl and the Scarlet Skunk. It's set in 1948, and the Scarlet Skunk is a male-to-female cross-dresser who lives in a time period where people are not at all tolerant of cross-dressing, where they assume that cross-dressing also means gay, and they, you know, the character is uh, an anti-hero in every sense of the word. No matter what good he tries to do, people always perceive him as wrong and evil. That reminds me of Corporal Klinger on MASH, where he was trying to get out of Korea, um, where they were serving, by cross-dressing all the time because it was considered a mental illness and you had to be booted out of the army if you had mental illness. And, you know, you're talking about setting something in 1948, and now with um, comics and movies that are not period, uh, you know, historically period like that, Somebody just yesterday on Twitter asked, do any of the universes have main characters that, that are transgender? And none of us could think of any. Uh, no, we uh, there there aren't any transgender protagonists, which is something I would love to change. Uh, if DC Comics is listening, I will write a Madam Fatal miniseries for you that will feature the first transgender protagonist in a superhero comic. Uh, and do, they, do they still own that copyright, or is it up for grabs? Yes, actually. Uh, Darwin Cook, who uh, illustrated uh, Catwoman for a while, uh, Darwin Cook did the storyline where Madame Fatal comes back for one final adventure. So, okay. so the, the characters still exist. It's still hypothetically uh, part of the DC universe and continuity. Uh, and, of course... Uh, you know, if it were up to me, hey, just the new 52, the universe has been rewritten and there's a new Madame Fatale who's a master of disguise and genuinely transgender and is out there ready to go fight evil. I would like to see that character then hit, <laughs> hit the, you know, the network with the Flash and the Green Arrow universe that they got going on while they're at it and introducing new people. Hell, why not? Well, write your congressman in DC Comics. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but, what was what was Dan's email again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, and actually speaking about you know major transgender characters, uh, you know Batgirl, one of her Batgirl's close friends uh, for the last few years uh, in both the current uh, creative team and the previous creative team, you know Batgirl has a close friend that's transgender, and one of the things that bothered me about uh, the dagger type evil drag queen storyline is that there is an actual male to female transgender character with them uh, and this is not addressed in any capacity in the storyline 
See, I thought uh, this is Alicia Yeo, I believe. Yeah. Um, I thought that with the new team, when they, they took it over, I thought somehow that character was just eliminated because I just can't keep up with DC. I don't read them <laughs> on a regular basis. So I'm just trying to follow things along on Twitter. Um, so, uh, no, she... Yeah, Alicia Yeo was actually her roommate. And it was just like, so of all people, Barbara Gordon should have been very understanding and accepting. So I, I, that was why I was just like, oh, Barbara was just surprised that this person wasn't who she thought. Yes. But it was because of that dialogue that, that it messed the whole thing up. And it could have been, there could have been a, a terrific moment that avoided many of these problems. Just, you know, just having, you know, Barbara's transgender friend look at a picture of, you know, the mysterious Batgirl and say, you know, there's something about her. And not that transgender people have, you know, our, our magical radar for spotting each other, but, you know, a character who's been through that process, maybe Batgirl or her friends could have deduced that the imposter was actually, you know, a, a cross-dresser, and that could have furthered the story, and it could have, you know, helped us understand that, you know, Batgirl doesn't really care that it's a man impersonating her, uh, and just getting back to the concept of anyone is impersonating her, and you know, and it's it's a a missed opportunity for a very obvious uh, way to employ the existing characters. Well, if DC and Marvel aren't aren't really with it at this particular juncture, um, I've been enjoying the way that a couple of the trans characters are written in the Warren Ellis book Trees. Um, they're they're not main characters, so I think some people are upset that they're not given more um, more of the storyline. But a young cis male character goes off to a big city, um, and he's an artist, so he ends up in this art community that is completely unlike the village he came from. I mean, it's like leaving bumfuck Iowa and going into the village, you know, during Pride Week. Um, so, you know, he's he gets taken in by a female to male older, um, you know, I don't know how old, but kind of geriatric almost type of character of, of a very, that mentor, that Obi-Wan Kenobi, Dumbledore <laughs> Um, type of character and um, and he's befriended by this woman and is really taken with her and once you know he's young and inexperienced and he doesn't understand what's going on and so she she also then you know comes to him and, and explains being transgender and they have a wonderful night of passion and it's exciting for him but it was it's when this older mentor then comes out and uh, to him later and he's just like wait you, you know it's like you are too? Like, how How did I live my whole life not knowing this existed? <laughs> and it's really, it's kind of handled well because it's handled from the perspective of this kid who just didn't know. He just, you know, he lived in this very isolated part of the world and, you know, things were a certain way and that was that. And then he goes off to, you know, this exciting new city. So I, I think that the characters are actually written well and I think his first time what comes off as his first time with sex at all and ends up being his first time having sex with a transgender woman. Um, it was just, it was, it was adorable and like how in love they are. That's stupid. When you first meet somebody and you hang out, you know, when you just are smitten, smitten kittens. And it was just, I thought it was handled well. So that's trees. And it's uh, Jason Howard, I believe is the artist, but that's, that's through image. So, um, you know, uh, that's usually the case is you usually have to go outside the big two to, to, you know, to maybe find characters that d don't repel <laughs> or, or offend. Although in within the mainstream uh, or, you know, the big companies, um, Runaways features a shape changing alien whose gender identity changes over the course of the story. See, I don't count shapeshifters. I'm one of those people. Because it's kind of like an out. If they're, you know, like, at any given moment, they don't have to worry about what bathroom they want to use. <laughs> well, that's You know, true. like, that's the thing to me. Like, they have it. They don't have the same concern. And especially, I mean, if it's something like that, maybe if it's a shapeshifter who's it's done magically and they have to go acquire all of their ingredients for a spell or something, maybe that's a little bit different. But most of the shapeshifters we've seen are, like, on the fly, like, mystique. You know, and like you're saying, this one from the Runaways. Yeah, the one. I just, the, I, I, I'm not sure about that. 
Well, uh, the, the deal with Zavin is that at first it was the character just changes gender to, to suit whatever uh, he's doing. And eventually uh, the character spends so much time in a female human form that she begins to identify as female. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, a, you know, it's a question of using the superpowers uh, to fuel the character's development. Okay, and of course, well, that was because that was during the Just Whedon. Uh, did, uh, he didn't actually start that that um, those characters, did he? He just took over the writing for a while, right? He, he just took over for about a year. Um, this was, I think, the writer who was working on the characters immediately before. Okay. So, um, yeah, that gets brought up a lot. Um, and every year, there's more and more... Um, queer comics panels at conventions where people can learn about uh, new storylines or old storylines that they might have missed and things like that. I was so grateful to be on the, the queer comics panel up in Boston and I got to see you in New York. Like you said, you presented two different um, things there. And so where can, do you know if you're going to be presenting at all this year? Like I know FlameCon is coming up in June. I expect that they will have some good things. Uh, well, we have two panels confirmed at the Penny Arcade Expo in Boston. Uh, that's PAX East, the first weekend of March. So there we'll be doing uh, two different panels on transgender characters in, well, two different panels on transgender themes in video games. One panel is going to be specifically devoted to all the new characters that have appeared since we did our first panel three years ago. Uh, and the other panel is going to be, we're actually playing a game called Trans Against Insanity, which is a variation of the game Cards Against Insanity. So you'll be able to, if you come to that panel, you'll be able to uh, possibly join us on stage with our uh, panel of celebrity guests and compete for, quote, valuable, unquote, prizes. And uh, it's going to be a fun panel that's also based around being uh, almost as educational as it is fun. That's good. Um, so I've never been to a PAX show before. Um, uh, so will you be at any of the New York shows? Um, well, we haven't confirmed anything yet, but I will be submitting. Well, it's uh, early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I will be submitting uh, panels if they do another special edition um, at New York Comic Con. And I'll also uh, attempt to do another one at the big New York Comic Con in October. I really liked the smaller show that they did in the spring. The problem was is that they had it on a weekend where there were um, three other shows in the New York area going on at the same <laughs> yeah. time. It was, it was like, oh, yikes, are you guys trying to all, like, outdo each other or what? Just pick a different weekend. Um, but it was, you know, it was really nice weather. Uh, the show was so low-key. I really enjoyed it. Um, but FlameCon, as I said, is a brand-new show in June, uh, June 13th, and it'll be in Brooklyn. Um, it's a show that actually is be was funded through a Kickstarter campaign. So if you backed it on Kickstarter, you... Um, depending, I guess, on your, your tier, uh, already have a ticket. <laughs> and that's going to be the first LGBT, uh, you know, QI, XYZ that, uh, that's on the East Coast, as far as I'm uh, aware, because I know that BentCon is somewhere out in, in the L.A. area. So I think that was the big exciting thing. Like, how has New York never had an LGBT, you know, queer comics convention before? So now they get one. You just have to go to Brooklyn. Sorry. <laughs> Brooklyn's not so bad. I live there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's harder to get to, though. It's, you have to, you have to um, either just suck it up and drive, or you have to be daring and take the public transit, which I am not. Um, well, cool. Uh, yeah, I, you know, hopefully the, the other New York shows, the Reed Pop shows, will, um, you know, continue accepting these diverse panels and things like that. Where can people catch, you know, your Scarlet Skunk and other creations that, that you do? Uh, well, we did uh, several productions of Astonishing Adventures uh, last year. Uh, there's no scheduled productions of that, but I am planning on doing an audio recording. Uh, the play, because it's set in the 40s, it's done in the style of a radio show. So I'm hoping to do an audio recording and uploading that to charlesbattersby.com uh, in the very near future. 
Uh, and if you're looking for a regular production that I contribute to, I write the Fallout Lore web series, which is on Shoddy Cast every other Friday. Okay. And uh, is that regarding video games, or is that... Uh, that's and, regarding one particular post-apocalyptic video game. Uh, there's no okay, transgender so themes okay. so far, um, but the game actually, since we're we're talking about you know transgender issues in general, um, uh, you know the game Fallout and a lot of other games uh, do have some great gender role options in them. So uh, maybe if you watch the web series, uh, you might want to try the game. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways to explore gender through those stories. Okay. Um, yeah, I just didn't want to assume that Fallout meant the game or if you were using it as, like, you know, Fallout Shelter or something or other. Um, and, okay, so it's just your name, charlesbattersby.com, and, of course, on Twitter also, same thing. Uh, Charles Battersby without the Y on the end. Because it didn't fit? Yeah. <laughs> not fit. Okay. <laughs> that, that Twitter restriction does get in the way sometimes. Um... Well, cool. I, you know, it'd be interesting if you got an audio production. Did you have any um, videos of the of your production during the time that it ran last year? Uh, no, it's a uh, actors' union. Uh, they won't let us film it. Uh, but, okay. Uh, but, but there are a lot of pictures, um, and there's a very short trail, uh, a short teaser video. Okay. Good. So then people can um, reach you through uh, those different outlets um are you okay with people sending you emails and things like that with questions um yeah people can email me charles at charlesbattersby.com or you can send me a facebook message or a twitter message whatever you're most comfortable with okay um because it's interesting that sometimes i get people who aren't willing to comment because they don't want something showing up publicly but then i'll get these emails as feedback and it's um, you know, but some, they they don't want to be public about things, so okay, you can retain some privacy if you have questions about a, a subject you think might be sensitive. Um, did you have any other things that you want to let people know about while I have you here? Um, well, right now, um, see, right now I don't have any live productions coming up. I'm oh, actually, yes, uh, there's there is something. Uh, the um, Brooklyn Botanic Gardens Sakura Matsuri uh, um, Cherry Blossom Festival, there's going to be some panels about cosplay that we're doing. So we'll be doing a panel on cosplay each day of that event. And um, it won't be specifically transgender, but there will probably be a couple of uh, cross-playing cosplayers that will discuss gender expression in cosplay in some to some degree. Okay, so what is the cosplay etiquette for... Um contests what would a, a person who's cross-playing enter in because they generally do break down contests into male and female uh, i don't know gonna, why but they do that's going to depend on the rules of whatever competition you're entering so okay. you, you'd need to consult uh, whether or not they have a specific definition for how they're using gender of the character gender of the person and how uh, how they deal with uh, cosplayers that identify personally as transgender okay good information to know all right charles thank you for all of this time and the enlightenment the education and always just hearing uh you know your wonderful self <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much i'm glad to glad to be here um, you guys can, of course, find me on Twitter, usually most of the time, at Elizabeth Amber or at AmberUnmasked.com. And, uh, again, if you have any questions, Charles is very easy to talk to, so you can just shoot him an email. Um, if you need to send it through me or if you think I have information on something, I will try to the best of my ability to answer questions on the subject, but I'm such a noob at learning all of this. Um by all means, call me out on my shift. I'm, I'm fine with that. Too. Um, so thank you, Charles, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Cheers. Cheers.